Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne, and this week we're investigating a world first in renewable energy that could have a transformative impact on reducing poverty in farming communities in West Africa. But before we do, we need to know more about a key element of this project, cocoa beans. use of the word cocoa is understood to have originated with the Olmec people in the humid coastal plains of the Mexican Gulf. Pronounced cacaoa, archaeological examination of their ancient ceramics discovered that these South American people had been imbibing a drink derived from the Theobroma cacao tree almost 4,000 years ago. As civilizations rose and fell, cacao beans became increasingly important in South America. Early users would split the pods open to make use of the sweet pulp that enveloped the cacao beans inside. But over time, people discovered that the beans themselves could be ground down to make a powder that became the basis of a refreshing savoury drink. But it was the Maya people of Mesoamerica, which extended from central Mexico through Belize, Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua and Honduras, who elevated the value of cacao by using it as currency. Its increasing value then meant that the drink stopped being commonplace and became the preserve of warriors and elite members of society. Drinking cacao beans was akin to burning money to stay warm. A hundred beans could buy a turkey hen, 30 could get you a small rabbit, an avocado was worth three cocoa beans and a large ripe tomato could be bought for just one bean. If we think back to the old English fairy tale of Jack and the Beanstalk, it makes Jack's decision to trade his cow for a handful of magic beans a little more understandable. The first European encounter with cacao is credited to Christopher Columbus on his fourth voyage in 1502. Seeking a strait through the Americas westward onto Asia, a hurricane blew his four caravels off course and they anchored at Guanaja, one of the Bay Islands of Honduras. In an account written by his son Ferdinand in 1503 and explained in an amazing book called The True History of Chocolate by Sophie and Michael Coe, there suddenly appeared an enormous canoe up to 50 metres in length. Rowed by slaves with ropes around their necks and sheltered from the sun by palm leaves, the canoe was immediately captured and its bounty inspected. It was a Maya trading canoe, holding a wide array of goods from cotton garments to axes and clubs for fighting. But it was the cacao beans that held most interest, as Ferdinand noticed how protective the Maya were over these. In his own words, When any of these fell, they scooped to pick them up as if an eye had fallen. But it was not until the Spanish invasions of Yucatan in 1517 and Mexico in 1519 that the bean was really understood. And although invaders appreciated it as currency, they were not impressed by it as a bitter drink. Yet over time, as the cultures merged, it became accepted with some changes. The Spanish liked their cacao drink to be sweet, and they added cane sugar and new spices such as cinnamon and black pepper, instead of traditional additives like chilli. They also liked to heat it and took it hot, not cold. By now, the drink was known as cacahuatl, cacao water. And just as it was an elite drink among tribal leaders and warriors in Mesoamerica, It became the preserve of royalty and nobility of Europe, where even more uses for the plant were discovered. Italians and Mexicans began using cacao grounds in food preparation. But modern production methods for cacao go back to a Dutch chemist called Van Houten, 
who developed a hydraulic press to improve the grinding process. His method enabled greater extraction of the fats in the beans, cacao butter, leaving behind a finer powder than ever before. Treating the powder with alkaline salts improved its dilution in water and cacao became darker in colour and milder in flavour. And more importantly, mass manufacturing became a reality. Modern day cocoa was born. Around the same time as Van Houten was experimenting with his hydraulic press, missionaries were experimenting with growing Theobroma cacao in new locations. Now this was not an easy task. The Pacific and Gulf coasts of Central America were perfect for cultivating the Theobroma cacao tree because they were home to the very specific conditions in which it thrives. Year-round humidity and warm temperatures are essential. In fact, an average of over 16 degrees is needed all year as a prerequisite to ensure that flowers bloom from the spongy cushions on the trunk and large branches of the Theobroma cacao tree, a process known as colliflory. There also needs to be a plentiful supply of small flies known as midges to pollinate these flowers because it's only when the flowers are pollinated that the miraculous cacao pods appear, growing steadily and ripening over a six-month period. In each pod, 30 to 50 cacao beans are nestled among a soft, white, fleshy pulp. It's not a coincidence, then, that the world's leading cacao-growing nations are equatorial countries banded around the circumference of the globe. In fact, heading more than 20 degrees north or south of the lines of latitude from the equator, and conditions become inhospitable for this tree. The experimentation by travelling missionaries took the story of cocoa to Ghana in the early 1800s. But it wasn't until later that century that farming of the cacao tree became successful. And credit for this is given to a blacksmith by the name of Tete Quache. Agriculture and farming was Tete Quache's passion, and legend has it that he discovered the beans on the island of Fernando Po and bought the Melonado pods over to the mainland in 1879, establishing a farm in the Aquapim area of the eastern region of Ghana. Today, the industry is Ghana's third largest export behind gold and crude oil, accounting for 880,000 tonnes of beans in 2018, cultivated and grown by over 800,000 farmers, employing over 3 million people. The industry's exports are responsible for 25% of all of Ghana's income, and growth of the sector has improved standards of living and reduced poverty rates. Challenges still remain, though. And to find out more, we spoke to someone on the ground in Ghana's cocoa-growing region, which means this audio might be a little harder to hear than usual. My name is uh, Julius Kujuahieko, and uh, I'm the executive director of the Centre for Energy, Environment and Sustainable Development. Dr Julius's organisation is an NGO based in Kumatsi in the centre of Ghana's cocoa-growing region. He is also a lecturer at the University of Science and Technology, which is also involved in this project, and we'll learn more about that later. Uh, basically, what we do as an NGO uh, is to try to provide solutions to problems that face local communities in Ghana. That includes sustainable solutions to key issues such as energy provision from renewable resources and cooking facilities. It involves collaboration between private sector and other organisations such as universities to develop and implement local solutions. Julius explains that although Ghana is the world's second largest cocoa producer, the majority of activity is carried out on small farms. majority of the cocoa farmers are actually uh, small-scale farmers. You can have a whole community that is practicing cocoa farming, and uh, every household or family will have a piece of land you know, somewhere 
cultivating uh, cocoa and uh, you know making sure that uh, they produce the minimum requirement uh, for government. And the government buys all of the cocoa for export, every bit. And its success in exporting it has had a massive impact on Ghana's economy. Over the past 20 years, it's contributed to halving the poverty rate nationally to 28.5% and bringing it lower to 23.5% in cocoa farming communities. Given its strategic importance to the country, which, like the ancient South American populations, relies on the trade of cocoa beans for generating revenue, it's not surprising that the government has intervened to ensure production rates and reduce the impact of international price fluctuations on farming communities. Accounting for 7% of total GDP and export income worth around $2 billion a year, the criticality of cocoa farming cannot be underestimated. But it wasn't always this way. Back in the 1970s, the global cocoa price plummeted and the Ghanaian government faced a crisis. Its own currency was devalued, interest rates rose and costs for cocoa farmers soared as income fell. By 1981, production had plummeted to its lowest ever levels and increasing international supply from markets such as the Ivory Coast and Brazil increased competition and absorbed some of the labour force. Ghana's cocoa growing industry was devastated. In response, the government launched an economic reform programme in 1983, which included the Cocoa Rehabilitation Project. Key steps included raising the guaranteed price that government paid farmers for the cocoa and paying compensation to farmers who replaced older infected trees with more productive cocoa varieties. Production rates recovered and the restructuring of the sector continued with six new local buying companies established to buy from the 800,000 farmers on behalf of government. Subsidies and incentives were also provided to help farmers increase their production rates and protect their plants from diseases. Julius reports that still today a lot of support is given to help ensure farms yield high levels of good quality cacao beans. And Ghanaian beans do have a global reputation for being of high quality, enabling the government to sell them on forward contracts guaranteeing prices for farmers. This vast improvement in productivity and better farming practices meant more investment in education and healthcare facilities. But in these rural areas, there's still a lack of infrastructure, including roads, water and electricity supply. This is in contrast to the more densely populated areas. And Julius points out that Ghana overall has been achieving an annual electrification rate of over 4% a year, with around 84% of the population on average now with power. Uh, However, uh, most of the areas that do practice uh, farming of cocoa, where cocoa is grown, very typically remote. And so, they, unfortunately, uh, not most of them are not connected to the national grid uh, yet. Even though they are plants, of course, uh, to connect a lot of the communities uh, to, to the grid in the future. But due to some, of course, obvious reasons, which includes uh, lack of infrastructure like roads and bridges to connect, you know, these communities to the larger communities, it becomes very difficult for electricity to be extended to these communities. Julius says it's impossible to overemphasize the importance of electricity provision, from stimulating economic activity to ensuring access to better healthcare and education, and solving simple but crucial problems like food storage. More controversially, international human rights organisations accuse Ghana and the Ivory Coast of employing child labour in farming. Intense poverty drives children to be put to work on farms, wielding machetes to split open cacao pods and using their income to support the families. 
In the worst cases, children are sold to traffickers to work on farms. Reducing poverty, then, would reduce the need for children to work in this industry, and better infrastructure would improve education and healthcare. Joe Darqua, a professor of energy storage technologies at the Faculty of Engineering at the University of Nottingham, says it's a matter of life or death for children in Ghana. The severity of poverty in the rural population um, is very, very high and also is among the poorest in terms of socioeconomic uh, groups in the country. Uh, that means the same people are likely to uh, incur debt uh, because of not being able to do certain things like um, harvesting and storing their uh, products. Also about 50% uh, of the rural uh, folks, you know, have no access to safe water and um, basic, you know, sanitation. Um, and as a result, uh, young children die, you know, each year, uh, mostly uh, from preventable diseases. Um, so this is something that energy, you know, can help to prevent. And the government is very keen, you know, to ensure that at least about 80% um, of the households in Ghana uh, would have access to uh, basic energy services by the year 2050. Professor Darkwa is working on a solution to providing energy to these rural areas. It's a type of renewable energy project that has never been done before, and it involves the very product that Ghana relies on, cocoa. Using financial support from the UK government's Global Challenges Research Fund, Nottingham academics are working with the local Centre for Energy, Environment and Sustainable Development, the government's Ghana Cocoa Board, and Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology in Kumadzi, Ghana, to bring electricity through gasification of the cocoa pod husks. In doing this, the project also has the potential to solve another big problem for farmers, what to do with their waste. Each cocoa pod contains between 30 and 50 beans, and once extracted, there's no further use for the outer shell or husk. When left to rot on the farms, this can result in the growth of a pathogenic fungi, which negatively affects the healthy trees. So removing it quickly is important for farmers. But with no waste treatment systems or logistics networks to move the waste, doing it is a challenge. Ghana produces about 850,000 metric tons, metric tons of cocoa annually. Out of that, each ton of cocoa that is produced or the beans that is produced, you get about 10 times that in form of waste. It's a lot of waste, you know, and normally left, you know, to rot on, on, on the farms. Yet a solution could be right under the noses of the farmers. The project was to look at how this waste can be converted in some form of useful energy. So what we did about a year ago is to undertake some form of feasibility study. Uh, so we visited the country and then visited the um, dominant cocoa producing areas, uh, collected some samples, uh, brought them to the UK and then started analysing them. The amount of energy content in these waste um, it is so much that, you know, it's something which we could explore further. Collecting samples meant gathering the husks of the four different types of cocoa beans produced in the 60 cocoa-growing regions of Ghana, the Melanado, Hybrid, Amazonia 
and Trinitario beans, and then testing them to determine their thermal characteristics. We brought these samples over, uh, some of them to, uh, to the UK, and then started uh, doing the investigation. And we were able to differentiate uh, between these uh, cocoa pod husks. And having done that, we realised there will be always necessary, you know, to look at the whole growing cocoa growing areas. The nature of the soil affects, you know, the integrity of the cocoa pod husk and also the uh, amount of ash content that you can achieve or obtain from this cocoa pod husk also varies from location to location. The ash content is important because in gasification, minimising this waste product is critical and the team is investigating how the type of husk and potential for including different additives in the process could help reduce the amount of ash left over. Having established the basic uh, thermal physical properties of these materials, uh, what we decided to do is to set up an experimental prototype power generation plant uh, at the University in Ghana, an experimental prototype you know, facility, and then start validating all these uh, cocoa pot that have been collected from different areas. And that has to go through different stages of processing, uh, such as drying, uh, to make sure that the moisture content is barely minimum, uh, and then, you know, breaking them down into certain particle sizes, and then make sure that um, they can be transported within a very uh, short distance. And the idea is to try and reduce your carbon footprint. Reducing transportation is also critical from a logistical perspective, as potential new energy plants will have to be able to easily access these waste husks. The problem that we identify is that most of these areas uh, have no access to good road network. Um, they, they have obviously access, no access to basic energy services. You know, so they are so remote. So when it comes to transportation, most uh, services or goods are done by foot, you know, which is very physical. So to be able to locate these um, the future demonstration plants in these areas would then minimize the amount of uh, logistical problems that need to be overcome. Electricity generation itself would happen via gasification of the cocoa pod husks. During this process, organic materials are dried and then heated in a low oxygen atmosphere before being gasified at high temperatures of over 700 degrees, creating a synthetic gas, syngas, which can then be used to generate electricity. Unlike incineration, there's no burning of waste, so it doesn't produce atmospheric pollution, and gasification of organic materials is considered a form of renewable energy. The good news for Ghana and other cocoa-growing nations is that so far the findings are exciting, with the husks having good thermal properties. So the, the system is quite energy efficient. If you look at the energy inputs and output, then you're talking about about 80 to 85% efficient. The first gasifier is under construction at the Technical University in Ghana with a power output of 5 kilowatts but the next phase will see 10 pilot plants constructed in various towns with much greater capacity. The demonstration one that we are developing at the moment at the university in Ghana is only five kilowatts. Uh, but when it goes to the villages, communities, then uh, we hope to scale it up to uh, 15 to 20 kilowatts because that would make it 
uh, a reasonable size for providing basic um, service like lighting, uh, basic power supply for refrigeration system, and then also uh, to provide some form of communication. Beyond the technical case, the project is also involved in creating community cooperatives that would operate the plants, and a range of models and locations are being discussed by local stakeholders. The um, idea is, first of all, to get these local communities, you know, to form uh, some form of cooperatives, because the whole idea is to, for them to become part of these stakeholders. And these cooperatives will be split into different um, activities that they would have to be responsible uh, for. Now, when it comes to trying to locate these demonstration plants, that is a problem that we have had discussion with the uh, local communities, especially the Cocoa Growing Farmers Association, for them to come up with the most convenient uh, places in their view. Uh, instead of we trying to impose on them uh, how to or where to you know locate these places. But to move to future phases, more funding is required, and this is also being investigated as the project moves into the next stage. Building the first prototype and conducting extensive research undertaken so far has cost just under £250,000, but over a million is required for scaling up the project. Funding is the major issue. Uh, the funding is limited, and it's limited uh, for this period of, of, of time. Uh, so beyond that, we then have to look at uh, other areas of funding, uh, which would enable the rollout you know, scheme you know, to become successful. The fundamental objective is to support poverty reduction. Any process that can be adopted you know, to um, reduce poverty uh, is what we are interested in. And we believe energy uh, services is one way forward. Professor Darqua stresses that successful implementation would be transformative for rural communities. This is the first time this uh, scheme is being introduced in, in Ghana. Uh, Ghana produces about 850,000 metric tons of cocoa annually. Um, unfortunately, the areas that produce, you know, this vast amount of cocoa pot lack basic amenities. They are not able to benefit from the national grid because of the location. Uh, if you compare it with the uh, urban areas, it's only about 15% of these local areas that have um, access to, you know, basic energy services. So the communities are very excited about the whole thing because it can create some form of, um, uh, you know, employment for them. It can also enhance the quality of, of life. Um, food storage, for instance, you know, uh, is a major problem. They produce a, lo a lot of food at that level, but storage facilities uh, don't exist. And obviously you need uh, some form of uh, energy, you know, to provide uh, refrigeration processes. You know. So that is going to help. The, the successful outcome of this project is going to help overcome some of these uh, problems you know, which exist in, in, in the uh, rural areas. In fact, this is the first time this has been done anywhere in the world. And if it's successful, other cocoa-growing countries could benefit. Inter interestingly, um, 
Ivory Coast or Cote d'Ivoire, which is uh, a neighboring country uh, to Ghana, is the number one cocoa producer in the world. <laughs> Hopefully, the successful outcome of this project, you know, can be transferred, you know, to Ivory Coast. And, and one thing we have also noticed is that, apart from cocoa, which is obviously the largest uh, form of uh, biomass uh, resource in those areas. We've also found other forms of uh, uh, waste materials or biomass um, uh, materials and also some other forms of uh, renewable energy sources. So hopefully in future we would look at the possibility of developing an integrated energy scheme and then incorporate some other forms of uh, energy uh, resources into a uh, cocoa-based uh, power generation system. Yeah, so that, that is the, uh, the plan for, for the future. It may be 4,000 years since the first uses of cacao beans were recorded, but the incredible thing is that new uses for this incredible plant are still emerging. From drinks to medicine to currency to chocolate bars and now electricity, Theobroma cacao really is a tree of life. A tree that keeps on giving. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, produced and hosted by Bernadette Ballantyne. Mixing and editing is done by John Young. Special thanks to the University of Nottingham and the Centre for Energy, Environment and Sustainable Development in Ghana. Fact-checking by Rian Owen. Rory Harris is executive chocolate producer. Theme tune by JM Sounds and additional music by Pond5. We'll be back in two weeks with more. If you like this podcast, please leave us a comment or review on your podcast app, which really helps others to hear about us, or simply tell a friend to have a listen. Engineering Matters can be found on all podcast apps and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. Follow us on Twitter at Engineer Matters or find us on LinkedIn, Reddit and Facebook. Read more about us online at reby.media.